Thanks so much, guys. Um, forgive me if I look a little bit flustered. I just tried to take my mask off, and it got stuck sort of on the, uh, on the Britney mic. And so my wife, Emma, had to rescue me with a kind of quick, I'll get it off you, lest I speak to you with a mask kind of dangling down this morning. But um, it's, um, it, it's great, to, uh, great to see you. And um, as the guy said at the start, if this is the, the first time that you're, you're joining us, either in the room or, or online, then um, it's so good that you're here. Welcome to our family. We love having new people amongst us. And um, you join us in the midst of, a, a series in the book of Hebrews. And um, we've, uh, we first started just before lockdown, actually, and then took a break as uh, God led us in uh, some other um, directions. And then last week did a bit of a creative recap of where we got up to. So if you've not seen that, and if jumping right into the middle of a book kind of seems a bit confusing, do catch up with that. It's available on YouTube. Um, we're up to chapter 5, um, verse 11. And, and the author has been talking about how Jesus is our great high priest. Uh, we might kind of talk of it, uh, I suppose, in, in more modern terms as our representative. Uh, he's meaning that uh, Jesus is one who can uh, sympathize with us in our weakness. He's one who's been tempted as we are and yet not compromised once. He presents us blameless before the Father. He ministers God to us because he himself um, is God. And, and then today, what, what happens is the other just takes a, a little kind of sidestep to, to challenge his hearers about some of their kind of um, heart attitudes and their character. Now, just to introduce this, uh, my wife and I um, moved house a few weeks ago. We moved into Wilford, just in the south of the city, and um, just fairly late on in, in the process of all that happening, um, I got to speak to the surveyor who'd done um, the survey on our house. Now, obviously, by this point, we love the house. It's so far down the process. Really, there's not a lot of turning back unless there is some drastically bad news. And um, he starts with the question, well, what do you think of the house? Uh, which instantly worries me because clearly we're not there to see what I think of the house. My view is very unprofessional about it. Um, but and then he starts sort of talking about um, one or two bits in the house. He's like, you know, have you, th- have you thought about the price at the moment? And there's various things with the insulation in the loft and you know, all these kind of things. And, and internally, I start getting super defensive which makes no sense whatsoever because I am paying him to tell me the risks of this house, and yet I want to bat them all away. It just makes no sense at all. This is useful information. And, and in times when, when things are, are difficult, like our situation now, like the situation for um, the hearers of this uh, message to the Hebrews, um, e- even though it can be um, hard to hear or even though we can get defensive, it, it can actually be helpful to hear of some of the spiritual dangers um, that we could fall into in times like now. And that's what the author uh, covers today, covers some very relevant ones for us. And he gives us the way forward. And so as I go through these, what I want to encourage you to do is to treat them as questions to ask yourself. Um, I want to encourage you to, uh, to be honest and to know that in his provision, his loving provision of Jesus as our great high priest, as our representative, our Father has given us everything that we need to grow. So I'm going to call this three spiritual dangers in tough times. And um, let me pray and then we'll just get into the passage bit by bit. Jesus, we come to you today. We thank you for the way that you've been focusing us uh, on yourself already. Lord, as we gaze upon you still further in and through your revealed words, uh, would you change us? Would you challenge us? Would you make us more like yourself? In Jesus' name, amen. So here we go, Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, words will come up on the screen, I'm reading from the ESV. It says, about this, we have much to say, 
And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For by this time you ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, by their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish goods from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith towards God and instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So the first challenge that he issues them with, the first danger, is that of spiritual immaturity. It's either milk or it's solids. Now, if you've got kids in your family, maybe you can identify with this analogy on a, 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 a kind of particularly deep level. Because, you know, with milk, like, other than puking it up, um, you know, on your clothes, in your hair. Emma once had it down her back under her clothes, I think, with, with one of ours. Um, generally, is much simpler, isn't it? It's simpler to clean up. It's simpler to digest. It's simpler to, to transport around. But it only grows the child so far. Whereas with solid foods, it's... It's a whole lot more difficult, isn't it? Not least in the clear-up, because you give the baby the solid food, and then by the end of the meal, invariably the clothes that you put on them have to be whipped off and chucked in the wash straight away. They've got clothes in their hair, in their eyes. They've got like marmite in your ear. How do you get marmite in your ear? But this just happens. And you have to clear up the floor. And what Emma and I found, it definitely has changed how much we are willing to eat food off the floor. Because if our kids are not willing to have food off the floor, they ain't getting any tea, basically. It all ends up on the floor. And then, of course, the grand finale, changing the nappy afterwards. And the first time you give a baby who's just moved on to solid foods a nappy, whew, unbelievably offensive. Although Emma did say how exciting it is when you see the first bit of, bit of carrot come through. It's like it, it works, like the digestion system works. But all of this, it helps the baby grow to maturity. Now, our culture, it talks quite narrowly about immaturity, doesn't it? Because actually our culture has a very high view of the self. And so anything that challenges the self rather than fulfills the self, particularly when we're talking about fully grown adults, it, it tends to, to sound quite cutting, doesn't it? And instead, we might talk in terms of sort of, oh, God has more for you in this area, or here's some areas for development things to grow into. But the Bible, which of course is the word of God, it, it has no such problem. The author says to listeners, you've become dull of hearing. You ought to be teaching others, but you're stuck on the basics. You can't handle the biggest stuff because you're immature. He's straight up with them because the present situation where they are suffering is very full on. The end seems an awful long way off. And it's causing some of them to stop growing, to stop seeking the Lord, and to get spiritually stunted. Now, I had my first experience of Google Meets this week, an early morning coffee with a friend. And he said something fascinating. He said, you know, when the pressure's on, what I find is that what's inside gets revealed. I wonder if you've noticed that in your own life. It's why the Bible makes sense when it says that God uses things like fasting and suffering to shape our character. 
And this, in this pandemic, there is lots of pressure on, isn't there? It's difficult, and I don't know about you, but I've found it has exposed many of my own character flaws, both to myself and to other people, which is much less comfortable. I was in a, a staff training context this week on Zoom, and um, whilst trying to um, feed my son fromage frais at the same time as he was trying to, trying to blow raspberries, which is two things that work in opposite directions, all on camera, of course, there was actually some great training going on. It's all about leadership development. And the guy who's done it said this fascinating thing about maturity. He said, the realization of immaturity is a step towards maturity. And it got me thinking of a particular conversation in my own life, some, I think it's about seven, eight years ago, where um, I had a chat with the guy that led the church at the time, Nick and Steve, who leads our church in Birmingham. And they just gave me some feedback. It picked me up on some things. They brought some challenge. JP, you're, um, you're pretty hard on yourself. There's times it seems like you're, you're pretty driven, and it's causing you all sorts of issues, um, both to yourself and, and to others. And, and it was hard to hear, but the realization of that was the first step towards change. And there's still things I, I have to battle with, but I've made some progress in. But it all stemmed back to that realization as the first step. I wonder what areas of your Christian life do you most need to grow in? Verse 12 talks about this expectation of growth over time. I wonder if there's areas where you look at your Christian life, at, at how long you've known the Lord, and conclude, I really could have grown more. Verse 11 talks about being dull of hearing. I wonder, are there areas in our lives where we've stopped listening to God's best for us? Our sexual purity, our attitude to money, to alcohol, to authority. But it's interesting to note that the main facet to their immaturity seem to be around understanding doctrine, the word of righteousness, verse 13 puts it. And he pauses, the author, on this explanation of, of a guy called Melchizedek because he's not sure that they'll get it. They're not sure he'll get who he is. And in, in a UK church culture where the willingness to uh, do the hard graft of Bible study is much less, where biblical let literacy as a whole nationally is, is down, it's worth each of us stopping to ask, would we be able to work out who he was either? Do you know, I've found it in my own life that the the 10-minute daily devotions where I'm sure that what I'm reading is good, but actually I have very little idea what the passage is actually saying. Ultimately, long-term, it, it just won't do. I, I, just being honest, like I, I need solid food to help me to grow. Like Maybe something like that, it might give me a nugget, it might give me some kind of like sugary spiritual pick-me-up or something like that, but it, it won't help me to grow. Actually, it leaves me, as the passage says, verse 13, unskilled, or verse 12, immature. And so what's the solution then? Well, to begin with, the author is equally blunt. He's pretty blunt in these things, isn't he? He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Basically says, sort it out. You identify something, don't stay there, do something about it. It takes hard graft, it, it takes step-by-step -step planning. Verse 14, chapter 5, talks about training and constant practice. But lest we take this burden to ourselves, 
and invariably get frustrated by our own inability to change. We must remember that his words here are a digression, a sidestep, an excursion from the beautiful truth that Jesus is our great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, who helps us to change, who presents us blameless before the Father, who as we abide in him, sanctifies us, that grows us to becoming more like himself. Therefore, it says, chapter 4, verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Let's have a look at the second danger that he raises in. So back into the passage, so picking up at chapter 6, verse 4, and here's what it says. For it is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that's drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated, it receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned." Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises." So the second danger that he points out when times are tough is spiritual impersonation. It's either thorns or thistles, or it's a useful crop. Um, now, when I was about 12, my football team, Stoke City, uh, moved stadium. And um, so the, the new one was built, the old one was knocked down, and the pitch was just left derelict, and it, it still is, actually. Um, and there's all these thorns and thistles which sprung up. And so, of course, the joke around Stoke was that um, nobody could understand why there wasn't much more of a useful crop that sprung out, given the amount of manure that was on the pitch each given week. But what we have here is one of the most difficult passages in the whole New Testament. And we have to interpret it carefully, lest godly people are left with a fear and an insecurity about their salvation. That is not what this passage intends to do. And so when there's confusion, what you have to do is to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And thankfully, the Bible is clear that if you're saved, if you're in Christ, if there's been a genuine change of your heart, then you can't lose that. You can't lose that. It was Jesus himself who got you into it. He opened your heart to believe. He changed your perspective so that you could see the truth of who he was. He gave you the faith to believe. He got you in. You can't get yourself out. But scripture is equally clear in saying that the way that we show this genuine heart change is by persevering in the faith, by producing fruit. 
Now, I got a book for Christmas uh, called The New Testament in Its World by N.T. Wright and Michael Bird. I was going to bring it in and quote it, but I ran in this morning, and um, I'd, they're joking because I say I never talk about running. In reality, I talk about running a lot, but it's a massive doorstep of a book, so I don't know where I was lugging that, lugging that one in this morning. But what it says is that in the Roman Empire, when a Jew became a Christian, it It was a massive deal because the Jewish religion had an exempt status from a lot of the Roman culture. So it didn't have to do things like emperor worship. But Christianity did not at the time, at least. And so not only was it seen as a threat, but when someone articulated that Jesus is Lord and thus Caesar is not, they were seen as an outright traitor to the empire. And the consequences ranged from um, simple sort of uh, societal exclusion, someone doesn't trade with you or something like, through to persecution and martyrdom in some cases. And here in this situation, there were some who looked like they had become Christians. uh, Verse 4, for instance, they've been enlightened. uh, They tasted the the heavenly gift. They shared in the spirit, tasted the goodness of the word and the the powers of the age to come. That means they'd seen the miraculous, the, the coming age coming into the present. And yet, now, they were publicly denying Christ, holding him up to contempt, verse 6 says. And in so doing, they were joining with with the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day and in essence, once again, crucifying the Son of God, destroying his reputation. That's why they won't be saved. They won't get in from that place. So this isn't like a a minor slip or a a few wayward years or a, a temporary distraction. This is, on their part, a vehement public rejection, actively working against Jesus, denying him as Messiah. Were they ever truly in, in the first place? I don't think they were, because they didn't continue. And it's interesting to note that the passage doesn't talk about them bearing fruit. And so the point of what the author is getting at is that to, to do this, to step out of, of, of loving Jesus, it's, it, this isn't just a change of, of traditions. It's not just changing a form of worship as, as some of the hearers thought. And hence why they were thinking, oh, maybe we'll just go back into Judaism. It's a, a politically safer option. No, this is a whole transition out of a way of life into a way of death. And what it shows is that it is very possible for someone to look like they are walking with God, singing the songs, saying the right things, maybe even publicly, perhaps even getting baptized, taking communion. And yet their hearts have never truly been moved such that they persevere. Ultimately, that they are impersonating rather than their hearts truly being given over to Jesus. And Jesus told a, a, parable, a parable about this, didn't he? The parable of the sower, where he talks about a farmer sowing seed as being the equivalent to the gospel being preached. And sort of at the extremes, you get some that lands on the path and the birds steal it straight away. And you get some that lands on the soil and produces a great crop. But in the middle, there is seed that lands on the, the rocky ground that has no roots and seed that lands amongst the thorns and just get choked, where there are signs of life, but they never grow into the full plant. And the warning here is that it's entirely possible to sing the songs, to do the stuff, to engage with the community, and yet never produce the fruit of a changed 
heart, a useful crop, as verse 7 puts it. It's just spiritual impersonation. And it can happen in a slightly different way once we're saved too. The Bible just calls it dead works. I was on a a Zoom call this week where... um, I think it was at the start of a prayer meeting, and um, uh, Chris, who leads, leads our, our worship teams, um, was, was just doing a bit of an exhortation and was just saying, you know, when we come to worship and, it, and it's over Zoom, it's so tempting just to have a very big awareness of the camera, you know, kind of the sort of, am I looking spiritual right now? You sort of the little sort of mid-song eye open just to see, like, can people just see my hands held properly highly, you know? And so he's just encouraged, he's just to lay all of that aside. That's dead works. And just to focus on Jesus. But there is a solution, and it's in the passage, and he talks about the reassurance of divine reward. And he says in, in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He's saying this danger is not the majority of you. It's akin to him saying that if you are asking this question about the security of your salvation with concern, or if you are understanding the consequences of it, then that is good news. Because it either means that you can give your heart over to Jesus right now, if you realize you've just been living the kind of nominal Christian life, or actually it shows that your heart is already in the right place, that God has moved in it. Now, I know that sometimes we ask this question in relation to other people. I know that sometimes demonic oppression can steal some of the joy and the assurance that Jesus wants us to have, and we fight against that. But Jesus is saying that there's reassurance here. And if this question disturbs you, that's good news. And don't just let that go. Just keep pressing into that. The reassurance of divine reward. And he says in in verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name. The author's saying to his people who are struggling, he's saying the challenge, the difficulty is worth it. It's worth ceasing the impersonation. It's worth truly serving Jesus with all of your heart because God will reward all the work that you do for him. So parents... God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. NHS workers, teachers, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name. Home group leaders, radiant cleaners staff, food bank volunteers, youth team, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work, the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints. He then jumps on to his his third one, which I'll just cover it uh, briefly, which is spiritual indifference. The third challenge, spiritual indifference, where he gives us the options of, well, it's either sluggishness or it's hope. And um, just when you thought he was going to get a little bit more positive, you know, I don't even know who wrote this. We can't even blame him by name, but um, it's just starting to feel a little bit more positive. But then, bam, verse 11, we desire each one of you to shame the same earnestness, have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. You're like, oh, thanks. Okay, right, let's consider this one. Sluggishness or hope. And yet, I'm sure that we all see the temptation to spiritual indifference right now, whether that's in our own lives, whether that's in others. You know, maybe the 
the Zoom calls that you've been on where um, people you might have expected to be there, maybe they were at the start of lockdown, just you haven't seen them for a while. Perhaps in your home groups where people kind of haven't shown up for another number of months now and you're just kind of wondering how they're doing. And it's such an important time for us to be praying for people in our church family that are struggling for whatever reason, good or bad, to access church online. Because this, this online community is not perfect by any stretch, but it is so much better than trying to live the Christian life alone. We need one another. And so the solution that he gives, the way that we can have hope, is by faith and patience. Verse 12, so that you, not might, you might not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. It's to trust God and embrace the weight. You know, sometimes we pray as if the gift is once the wait is over. And you know, like as, as we pray for, let's say, the pandemic to end, it will be a tremendous gift when we can all be back here together, when ministry's flourishing, all the serving teams Claire referred to kind of getting back up and running. That will be a gift. And yet sometimes the gift is the wait, that there is purpose in the wait. There's purpose in this time. God's doing things amongst us. And if we, if we miss that, if we don't see it as that, we can get distracted, we can get indifferent. And so I've been so encouraged by um, a couple of different prophetic words from people amongst us that have talked about the purpose of what God's doing in this time as we try and discern what that is. That um, Austin Foote shared one just a couple of weeks ago about um, the online presence that we've been um, forced really to establish during this pandemic, ultimately being part of God's plan for us longer term. So we've got a deeper reach into the city for all that he wants us to do. Phil Collins talked about uh, uh, the present situation as being like a fruit tree that was being shaken. And even though so many of us feel like there's things that are falling off of us in this time, nonetheless, there is space being created for new fruit to grow. It's about faith and waiting on him. And so what does God want for us then to finish? He wants spiritual certainty. He wants us to have spiritual certainty. And we don't have time to read it, but um, verses 13 to 20, um, I suppose in summary, they, they talk about Abraham, guy from the Old Testament. And um, God wanted, wants us to know the certainty of the promise that he made to Abraham, that Abraham would be a, a father of a multitude of nations, that he had many des descendants whose God was the Lord, who us as a community where we are children of Abraham, if you like, all across the world, that is all to the glory of God. God wants us to know the certainty that all that's happening is not derailing that promise. And so he, he doubles up, God doubles up. In, in two factors, number one, God can't lie. But number two, he swears an oath anyway by himself. That he wants us to know that all that's going on is not derailing his purposes, that he still provides everything we need. And it finishes with these beautiful words in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, with spiritual immaturity, spiritual impersonation, spiritual indifference, really the way to avoid all of them is to come to Jesus. He's the one who grows us and then presents us as mature before the Father. He's the one who 
gives us a new heart and then produces true fruit in us as we abide in him. He's the one who, consumed with zeal for his father's house, will keep us from sluggishness. Our sure and steadfast hope, our anchor for our soul, he brings us into the very presence of God as our representative, as our high priest, which brings us up to this guy Melchizedek, and Derek Tiddle will pick that up in a few weeks' time. That's for now. We're going to stand together in the room. Uh, if the band want to come back up as well. And um, we're just going to pray. And just wherever you are, was on your sofa or um, watching this at your desk or whatever, I just want us to take a, a moment just to, to come to Jesus once again. And I particularly want to pray for two categories of people. The, the first would be those who maybe some of what I've been saying today is just kind of and a bit of heart sifting to reveal a, I think I've just been living almost like a nominal Christian life rather than my heart truly being given over to Jesus. I want to pray for you. The second would be, I just recognize that there are areas of my life that fit into those categories, bits of immaturity, bits of impersonation, bits of indifference. And um, I just want you to kind of acknowledge before the Lord if you identify with those. Maybe close your eyes if that helps. And say, Father, we, we come to you. And I'm just going to pray for the first category first. Lord, I bring before you everyone who right now is just asking those questions of, have I just been like doing this stuff without the changed heart? What a great place to be in, Lord, that you're bringing your conviction such that you want them to give their hearts over to you right now. And I ask God that you would just bring your comfort and your reassurance that you are ready and willing to be found as we reach out to you. It might be you just want to spend the rest of this prayer time just giving your heart over to Jesus, telling him your life is his. You're living for him now. That's what it means for a heart to be changed. But for the rest of us, Lord, where we recognize that we're all on a journey, that there's bits of all of us that need to change, I want to ask by your Holy Spirit that in this restoration of hope that you've been speaking to us about today, Lord, that in the difficulty of this present situation, that you would grow us into maturity, that you would give us a purity of heart and you'd keep us zealous for your name, such as your promises, such as your promise to Abraham, such as your promise in how we know because Jesus has come. We come to you, Father. We cast ourselves upon you again, God, knowing that we will find grace and mercy to help in times of need. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, I'm going to hand over to Claire, and we'll see if the band can find a song with Melchizedek in to finish. <laughs>